Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer or you're holding a device with an app on it, I want you to find Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah chapter 16. For those of you who are guests of ours, we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah for quite a while. And we're working our way through this book, scripture by scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because we believe the authority in the preaching event is not in the pastor, the platform, the position, or the personality. It is in the Word of God. And the best way to milk the Word of God of all of its spiritual nutrients is to read it and study it as God inspired it. And so the pattern of our preaching ministry here at Church at the Mill is to take a book of the Bible and to walk through it together. And what we find is it's not boring, it's not mundane. In fact, we're able to discover just how deep and how living it is. And so we come this morning to a new series inside of the book of Jeremiah, simply entitled Reworked. That series title comes directly from a passage we will deal with in a few weeks. In fact, this morning I'm going to preach to you from Jeremiah 16, but the theme verse of this entire series is found in the 18th chapter. In Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house to go watch someone forming with clay a vessel. And when Jeremiah goes and watches, he sees something play out in front of him. In the fourth chapter of the 18th, fourth verse of the 18th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, it says, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. It probably is the most famous metaphor, living metaphor in the book of Jeremiah. We have sung songs about giving our life to the potter's hand to make me, to mold me, to break me, and to form me. And it is a beautiful thing to watch a potter, a skilled artist, a skilled craftsman or craftswoman, take a lump of unformed clay and spin that wheel and with skill, delicacy, and strength of finger and hand, form a beautiful vessel. And then if there is a flaw, if something happens, to crush that vessel and to rework it again, to bring something from nothing from the miry clay. Sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Who, of course, is the primary preeminent potter? It is the Lord God. And over the next few weeks, in chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, we're going to watch God continue to unfold not only his working, his reworking. And so I might ask you today to contemplate for just a moment your life. This is, of course, the role of the Word of God. It is not simply to inform you about biblical facts. I'm not interested in you just being smarter biblically. You, you should know your word. And when you walk out of any sermon worth its salt, you should have learned something. Part of being an elder is to be able to teach. And so I believe that content matters. But the art, the passion, the call, the gift of preaching to the church is not that you just grow in your knowledge it's that you grow in your love and obedience to the Lord. See, I'm not preaching about a book. I'm preaching from a book about a God. And that God wants to know you personally and wants you to walk with him 
and to live your life in a way that honors him. Which leads to a simple question in keeping with our theme verse. Is there any area or part of your life that you would like the Lord to rework, to reform, to reshape? I must tell you that it is a romantic thought to think about God making something beautiful that's not, making something new that's old, making something well that's sick. But I have to also tell you that before the potter can remake it, the potter has to break it. Before the potter can reform it, the potter has to crush it. Before the potter can reuse it, he has to retool it. And it is in that process that we find the pleasure and the pain of the work of God in our life. That often it is from the clay of scars that he makes the most beautiful portraits of grace. And we're going to see this time and time again in these next few chapters. And so we come to chapter 16, and my favorite verse in chapter 16 is the last verse, though I'm not going to skip the first verses to get to it. I want to read it, though. Chapter 16 of Jeremiah, verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. I want you to read that with me out loud. Let's read it together. Verse 21, and I'd like to hear your preacher voice if you don't mind. Verse 21, let's begin. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Now, I'm not here teaching homiletics, but if I were, I would tell you in sermon delivery, it's okay to say my name is the Lord. Do you see my knees bend? My name is the Lord. My name is the Lord. This is the emphasis of chapter 16. God cares about his name. And so, of course, the sermon title is given to us. His name is the Lord. His name is the Lord. When I finish this passage, I'm going to ask you a question. Does your life know his name is the Lord? Didn't ask about your brain. I didn't say, does your brain know his name is the Lord? Does your life know his name is the Lord? What I know by watching you live your life, that you know his name is the Lord. You know, we hear a lot of people trash talking about my name. We're going to be so good when you play us, you'll never forget the name of our team. I'm going to make a name for myself. There's a couple of young men in contention today down in Augusta National. And if they slide on a green jacket this evening about dark, their name will be known. In fact, when you think about names, often you think about names most when you're blessed through biology or adoption to receive a child into your life. And you spend time talking about the child's name. Some people know it the moment they conceive. They run to the embroiderer. Others of you don't know. I had both experiences. That there were times when Lord and I kind of knew. And then there were times when we don't know. We ran out of names. In fact, my second son, I really named him Noah. 
I thought we were going to name him Noah. She gave birth to him. We hadn't decided, but I was fighting hard for Noah. I like Noah. Nothing against Noah. She did not. If your name is Noah, doesn't mean she doesn't like you. She just didn't like that name. I taught the oldest boy to say Noah. It was so cute. Noah. She gave birth. After she gave birth, her and the nurse needed me not. I went home, took a shower, got a change of clothes, stopped by Krispy Kreme on my way back. By the way, if you are a young man who one day will be a father, that's a good tip for you. Go to Krispy Kreme, buy three dozen donuts. Get one dozen for you, one dozen for your wife and family, and one dozen for the nursing station. They will bring you pillows and blankets and anything you want. They knew my name. I went home, I came back, Laurel said the woman came by to fill out the birth certificate, I named him Micah. She looked at me and I looked at her and nothing was said but what was needed to be said was left unsaid. Her eyes said, you saw what I just did to bring Micah into the world. Your contribution was minimal. His name is Micah. And today, his name is Micah. There are even websites where you can put in your proposed name to see if your baby is going to be famous. It's the truth. 20 famous names that will make your baby a star. Now, this is online, so it must be true. <laughs> Parents.com. So I couldn't help myself. We're all a little self-centered. I typed in my first name. You may not have known my first name. My first name is Dennis. Dennis Jason Horton is my name. My dad said there was about a decade there where it stood for dumb, Jack, and we won't finish the rest of it. <laughs> but Dennis Jason Horton is my name. So I typed in Dennis. It said if you name your baby Dennis, he has zero chance of being a star athlete. <laughs> but he'll be an actor. And I thought to myself, when I played ball, I acted like I was an athlete. That's about as far as it went. Now I want you to know if you are an aspiring parent, your child's name might to some degree mean a lot to them, but not nearly as much as your child's character. And that's part of parenting, not part of naming. Yet God chooses to spend time making sure the world knows his name. What can we learn because his name is the Lord? Well, this chapter does not begin in a happy place. It begins in a difficult place, as does most of the book of Jeremiah. I remind you as we dive into this sermon that Jeremiah has been asked by God, has been asked by God to deliver the news that judgment is coming upon Israel due to their abandonment of worshiping God and their adoption of idols and idolatry. And so we'll learn from chapter 16, first of all, because his name is the Lord, there are costs to being his messenger. This is one of those moments in prophetic ministry where we see that following the name of the Lord will cost you something. For Jeremiah, it cost him very dearly. Look what the Bible says in chapter 16, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife. That's right. You shall not take a wife. 
nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. And here's why God said, Jeremiah, I don't want you to marry. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be a dung of sacrifice of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. So the first thing we see is that Jeremiah is asked to be a living messenger. Whenever a man is called to be a messenger of God, it better not just be his language, it ought to be his life. We all know how disheartening it is to hear some man or woman of God be found out that their public ministry did not match the depth of their private life and that they hid or perhaps had ulterior motives, secret sin, rebellious attitudes. We've seen this time and time again, and the Old Testament saw it as well. To prove the validity and the genuineness of Jeremiah's message, God said, Jeremiah, I'm not just giving you a little sermon to preach. I want your life to be a message to the people around. And so for you, Jeremiah, specifically, I don't want you to marry or have a family. It won't be a part of your life. Now, I want to say that God blesses and marriage is a blessing. He created the book of Genesis. We see that right from the very beginning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, so God blessed and ordained marriage. It is the first institution of humanity. It supersedes the church. It certainly supersedes government. It is by design. The world can attempt to redefine it if they want, but God has not changed his mind. It is a commitment between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Additionally, children are a blessing. They're never seen in Scripture as a burden. In the ancient world, in other examples of literature, they are seen as a burden, but not in the Word of God. Psalms 127, verses 3 through 4 is probably the most famous. Some of you may have this in a painting or some type of uh, mural on your home. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So, just because God is calling Jeremiah to a life of celibacy, a life where he will not be a parent, it does not mean that God doesn't bless marriage. However, we must be careful not to elevate marriage and parenting to an unbiblical norm. There are many of you in this room who find yourself single today. You may not have ever married. You may be divorced or widowed. Others of you are married, but you are childless for a number of reasons. You may be struggling with infertility. It may have been a decision based on circumstances beyond your control. You may have had the pain of losing a child in miscarriage or death. And often when we come into church and we celebrate as we should marriage, and we celebrate as we should children, we leave those people feeling as though they are second-class Christians. That is simply not biblical. The Scripture teaches that while marriage and children are a blessing, like any other blessing, they are not elevating someone to a closer relationship with God than someone who is unmarried. In fact, if you think about it this way, Paul, the apostle, talked about the tension between serving the Lord and serving your spouse. Again, Paul loved marriage, taught about marriage, but listen to what he told the Corinthian believers in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, 
and how to please the Lord. In this sense, he's not burdened by the responsibility of caring for a wife. Verse 33, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. If you're married, you can say amen. Amen. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. Paul goes on to say, how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, Paul goes on to say, just so you're not confused, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is not arguing for celibacy, and he's not arguing for marriage. He's just saying, when you are married, you take upon the biblical responsibility of caring for your spouse. And if your marriage leads to children, again, whether through the gift of adoption or the gift of biological birth, you take upon the burden of children. God could call me to go pastor another church. I don't think he ever will. I've asked him not to. I'm settled here. But he could. He could call you to change careers. But I want you to know, if you're married today, God is never going to call you not to take care of your spouse. He's never going to call you to abandon your children. That is a lifelong calling. This is why when a young man or a young woman stand at an altar, they say, until death do us part. And yet God said, Jeremiah, that may have been something you wanted in your life, but it's not for you. This is not my will for your life. Seems to be a hard truth, yet I know Christians who have lived a life of singleness and celibacy, and God has used them in unique and special ways, in ways perhaps would not have been open for them had they taken a spouse. This was a personal cost to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a lot of things, but surely he's a normal man with normal desires, a desire for romantic love, a desire to be a father. And yet God said, I want you to deny yourself of those things. No family, no marriage. But also, Jeremiah, no mourning and no feasting. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 5. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him. By the way, God knows this is how God's people mourn. We sit together, we cry, we laugh, we eat. It's not just a Baptist thing to go and feed the family who's suffering. It's a biblical thing. But God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, don't go do that. Life's not normal anymore. The armies are gathering at the north and Nebuchadnezzar is coming. And when he does, he's going to lay such a siege. There's not going to be any undertakers left to care for the undertaking. There'll be no morticians left to help the mourning. There'll be no funeral home directors left to help those who have lost their fathers. No, no, no. Jeremiah, your life has to be different because of the cataclysmic events that are coming. You've got to get their attention. Don't be attending funerals and don't be attending festivities. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 8. 
You shall not go into the house of feasting or to set with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So think about those beautiful moments in life when we attend a funeral and we weep with someone who's weeping or we attend a wedding reception and we rejoice with someone who's just been married, which usually involves cake and a poorly performed electric slide. (laughs) Jeremiah, you don't do those things. You isolate yourself. You may say, gosh, is the Lord being hard on Jeremiah? Can I just give you a truth that you may not hear in today's rampant, shallow Christianity? God has the right. God has the right to isolate you in order to accomplish something bigger than your personal plans, wants, needs, or desires. Can you imagine the isolation Jeremiah felt when he was not allowed to attend funerals, not allowed to attend festivities, not allowed to take a wife, not allowed to enjoy children? And yet God said, Jeremiah, I'm doing something far bigger than you, and I'm going to ask you to sacrifice for that because I want your life to be a living message. Pastor, is there any modern day application of this? Well, I certainly couldn't take this passage and tell you or you that you should never marry or that you should never have children. That's not the meaning of the passage. We're not told here this is supposed to be the pattern. We're told here this is a unique set of circumstances. But I've known young women who left college and went to the mission field instead of looking for a husband. Maybe later in life they found one, but their heart was to serve Jesus. I've known young men that just decided the dating scene is so full of sex, sensuality, and senselessness, they were going to choose to be single and honor the Lord, keep their head down and focused on his will, and said, God, I will take a wife that you bring to me, but until you do, I am going to focus on you. I've known people in their heart of hearts who longed for a child only to see one issue come after another and then at some point make the decision, Lord, if it's not your will for us to have children biologically, could we open our home for a child in need? And Lord, if it's not your will for us to open our home, what can we leverage our lives for because we are someone without children? You see, Unfortunately, when we shallow and water down Christianity to some Western mindset of Jesus meets all your needs immediately, we forget to tell people that God may ask you to go without something, and he has the right to do that in order to use your life in a significant and eternal way. I seem to remember self-denial is an attribute of Christianity. Not lack of joy, not choosing to not enjoy the gifts God does bless us with. Jesus said, take up your cross. He didn't say take up your dreams. He didn't say take up your ability to be a goal slayer. He didn't say take up your motivational Instagram post of the day. He said take up your cross, which means you say, Lord, I have plans and desires and hopes But your will be done. Is this not what the writer of Proverbs celebrated over and over again? 
Think about what the scripture says in the book of Proverbs about God's will and our plans and what it looks like. In the book of Proverbs, the scriptures say to us over and over, in his heart a man plans his way, but the Lord ordains and orchestrates his steps. And when we think about that scripture and we think about what it looks like in our lives, I think about Jeremiah being willing to pay the cost. Because his name is the Lord, he has the right to ask you to do hard things. Secondly, because his name is the Lord, there are consequences to generational disobedience. Look what verse 10 says. He switches gears and he begins to ask a question of Jeremiah that Jeremiah is going to get. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, hey, Jeremiah, why aren't you getting married? You're not having kids. You know your mama wants grandkids, Jeremiah. Why aren't you getting married? Why didn't you come to my wedding, Jeremiah? My mama died last week, Jeremiah. You didn't even come by. No potato salad was sent. Jeremiah, why are you pulling away from us? Why is your life looking so different? Why do you keep harping on this judgment you say that's coming? Sky's blue today. Looks good to me. Last time I looked, my bank account's in good shape. I've got a job. I'm doing so good. I got to wear shades, Jeremiah. What in the world are you so depressed, discouraged, and isolated for? And God said, Jeremiah, when they ask you why you're looking down, why you're looking different, why you're looking divinely called, you tell them this, beginning in verse 10. And when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have kept not my law. Now, think about the digression there. They forsook God. Now, this is the fathers of the people Jeremiah is prophesying to, the generation before. They forsook God. They went after other gods. They didn't just go after other gods on the level of cognitive acknowledgement. Well, maybe there is a sun god, and maybe there is a moon god, and maybe there is a god of fertility or a goddess of fertility. No, no, no. They said, those gods exist, and we will serve and worship them. By default, when you begin to serve the gods of the world, you have no shot at obeying the God of heaven, which leads to the last phrase of guilt. God said through the word in verse 11, last phrase, they have not kept my law. Now, at this point, you may be tempted to go, wait a minute, Jeremiah is not going to marry. He's not going to get to have kids. He's not attending funerals. He's not attending weddings. He's telling them judgment is coming. They ask, why is it coming? And then Jeremiah is supposed to tell them about their parents or their grandparents. Does God hold you accountable for the sins of your fathers? Now, there is interesting scripture that talks about generational blessing and generational curse. Here's the deal. If you and your spouse, you and your family honor the Lord God, it blesses your children. It does not mean your children will honor the Lord God, but it certainly puts them in a great position to know and see that the Lord God favors those whom he is honored by. Same thing. If you stray from God's will, if you allow sin into your home, if secret sin, rebellious sin, anger, frustration, all types of sin are allowed into your life, it will splatter onto the lives of your children. It doesn't mean that the child of a rebel, a rebel against God 
is destined to not serve the Lord, it does mean they have more to overcome. There's no doubt in my mind that the development of my faith was deeply and profoundly impacted by a mom and a dad, many of which, many of you've never met, who loved the Lord Jesus with all of their heart. They were far from perfect. They would never tell you they were perfect. But from an early age, there was never a struggle for me to know that the Lord is real because I saw him work in the lives of my mother and my father. And I'm grateful to know that that generation goes back to grandparents and great-grandparents. And so the Bible does paint the picture of generational curse and generational blessing. But am I guilty of my father's sin? And then we come to the next verse. The next verse answers it. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 12. And because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Notice the digression. The fathers and the mothers entertained other gods. Then they begin to follow and worship those gods. By default, they begin to disobey the God of heaven. By the second generation, guess what became the most popular God? The God of me. Does that not sound like the world you and I live in today? You see, we live in a Romans 1 culture where people have access to the knowledge of God, but in continual denial have been turned over by God to their own sinful demise. Just when I think it can't get worse, I open up my news app this morning, and a mother of three has stabbed all of her children in another state. Just when I think it can't get worse, I know local educators who love the Lord Jesus and are struggling to make sense of federal agenda, shoving down the redefinition of something my five-year-old can distinguish, a boy and a girl. Just when I think it can't get any worse, tolerance used to be everyone had an equal right to their belief. I believe that. But now tolerance has become everyone's belief is equally right. I don't believe that. Just when you think it can't get any worse, you see depravity spill over. And the reason I share that with you is not to discourage you. I want you to know you're not alone in the history of God. You had not seen anything compared to what Jeremiah's seen. Nothing we're dealing with today in the United States of America would cause Paul to wonder. What he describes in Romans 1, what Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah chapter 16, is exactly the plight of any human heart that cuts its mooring off of the Creator God who gives us the spiritual ability and the moral authority to live our lives according to our created purpose. Because his name is the Lord, he will not allow these consequences to go unpunished. Look what the Bible says beginning 
in verse 13. Therefore, I will hurl, that's the word you use to throw a spear, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. You ever been asked to leave somewhere versus being kicked out? There's a difference between saying, hey, guys, uh, you, you need to move out of here. We've, we've got to use this for something else. And being thrown out of something. You ever been thrown out? Some of you have been thrown out of places you should have never been in. And you weren't even behaving good enough to stay in a place of misbehavior, so they threw you out. You know what it means to throw somebody out? God said, I'm going to throw you out. And that's exactly what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem, 586 B.C., destroys Jerusalem, marches everybody off down to, or around uh, to Babylon, and they live there, and they're among all these people there and all these other gods, and there is no favor. God says, I'm evicting you from polluting my land because my name is the Lord. Let, let me close because I'm getting close to my time. I had to preach a short sermon on Easter. I told the staff I'm pent up. Because his name is the Lord, there is a contrast between him and the gods of this world. Look what begins to happen in verse 14. All of a sudden, in a gloomy picture of despair, the sunlight broke. Bad storm come through here last night. Bad storm. I was watching the masters, looking over my sermon notes, trying to do both at the same time. And the guy broke in and said, if you're on the west side of Spartanburg, you ought to take cover. Specifically, we see some rotation on 290 heading up Anderson Mill Road. They don't normally say the name of the road the church is on. I don't live on Anderson Mill Road. In fact, I live well south of here. But I had family near here, and I'm concerned about our campus, so I immediately reached out to the facilities director. He was already on his way over here to make sure everything's okay. We do have church the next day. We want to make sure. We monitor it. There's a lot of security in place, a lot of cameras, a lot of personnel are involved in taking care of this campus. And so he does a great job of managing that. But no sooner had that bad sale gone through our community, and many of you live right around here. You saw it. You experienced it. Some of you online may not have, but many of you that live right in this area have. What always happens with a tremendously powerful storm, always, is that it's moving fast. The reason it's moving fast is it's being pushed by a front. Storms aren't pulled, they're pushed. And they're normally being pushed by a front. Now, because I'm an outdoorsman, I'm a weather nut. I'm always looking at the weather. Always, always, always looking at the weather. And so, storms are typically associated with low pressure, and they're pushed by high pressure. Of course, that's refer referring to the barometric pressure. And so what happens is, often right after the most terrible storms, we have the most beautiful sunsets. And I don't know if you saw it here yesterday in our community, but that storm went through, and then it was absolutely as if God decided today, I'm going to pour me a cup of coffee, I'm going to get my favorite oil paint, and I'm going to paint the most beautiful sunset over the sky. That's exactly what happens in verse 14. The storm of Nebuchadnezzar's army is coming through, and then look what happens. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That was the first exodus. 
you know, before Jeremiah came, that's what people said. Hey, let me tell you about my God. My God brought us here out of Egypt. And God said, I'm going to do away with that because I'm going to do a second exodus. Look at the second exodus. The Bible says, but as the Lord lives, verse 15, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them out, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. What we're going to begin to find is as this book continues to progress, there's some sprinkling of hope. God says, they used to brag that I brought you out of Egypt, but now they're going to say, you brought us out of Babylon. You brought us back from captivity. God is different than the gods of this world, number one, because he keeps his promises. Do you know what actually happened? It's right there in your Bible. No sooner have they been totally exiled that God began moving among his people. He preserved a remnant. A man named Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the wall. A man named Ezra came back and rebuilt the altar. And first it was the dozens, and then it was the hundreds, and then it was the thousands. And by the days of Jesus, guess where many of the Hebrews were living? Right there in Jerusalem, right there in Israel. God had restored and kept his promises. One of the powerful things about being in your Bible is that you don't always know how he's going to keep his promises to you. You don't know what he's doing next year. You can't see five years down the road. You don't know how he's going to resolve the situation. And any preacher or any spiritual leader that tells you they know exactly how he's going to work in your life is being rather arrogant. But what I do know is that I've got hundreds of years recorded over at least three different languages from many different cultures and many different generations And you know what's true about every promise God makes in the Bible that was to come true during the times of the Bible being written? They came true. Every one of them. In fact, the only unfulfilled promises in Scriptures are the ones that are for his second coming. If he kept his second exodus, well, I'm going to bet he's going to keep his second coming. He keeps his promises. Let me tell you why he's different than the gods of this world. He carries out his punishment. I'm not afraid of false gods, fake gods, idols. I'm not afraid of a government. I'm not afraid of world powers. They are all limited, but not God. No sooner has he given this hope. Look at verse 16. If you are a fisherman, tune in. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Boy, isn't that good? They shall catch them. And afterward, I will send many hunters. That's what I am. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. Now watch verse 17. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land and the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So right after the hope, God says, but I'm going to punish first. I'm going to break the clay down before I rework it. And he uses the analogy of a fisherman and a hunter. He says, first, anybody that's disobeying and rebel against me, I'm going to send fishermen. This is a metaphor for Nebuchadnezzar's army and how they're going to through, go through. And in uh, swat-like nets, they're going to take the people captive and send them away. And then you know how fish are when they get stirred up. They run and hide. Well, you got to hunt what's hiding. I'm going to use 
hunters. Fishing has evolved. You know, used to, you go up to a body of water, whether you're in a boat or a bank, and you say, well, there's a tree, and it looks like it's running down into the water. I bet there's a tree top under there. I'm going to flip my old Texas rig watermelon seed up in there and see how I do. Or you may say, you know what? It looks like to me there's a point and a point. I bet you that point comes out to some rocks under here about 15 or 20 feet. But see, now all the guesswork's gone. We have fish finders now. I'm not talking about that thing on your granddaddy's boat that tells you how deep the water is. I'm talking about some amazing HD definition where you can look and see the tree or the old car your cousin stole in the 70s right there in the lake. <laughs> and some of it's so advanced now, you can watch the fish bite your lure. It's like playing a video game. The problem I often wonder about this, though, is that when I couldn't see, I always had hope. Maybe there's a fish there. I don't know. But it breaks my heart to watch that fish swim up to my worm and then swim away. This is why I'm a hunter. I can shoot you as you leave. And, and, and God said, I'm going to punish completely all of the injustice. So listen, application. When you see the world killing itself, when you hear horrific stories of tremendous brutality and injustice, I'll tell you what will guard your heart from sinful anger. You ought to have holy anger. I'm not going to be okay when someone's mistreated. It's I'm never going to be okay when the unborn are murdered. I'm not, I'm not okay with children being manipulated and, and coerced into thinking that taking medications to block their puberty is a solution to their emotional struggles. I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to stand for it. I'm not going to vote for it. I'm not going to agree with it, but I'm not going to walk around mad at lost people, okay? And, and when I see someone who is completely and totally wicked, I know two conclusions. One, they need the Lord, and he can save anybody. But if they don't turn to the Lord, he'll punish them. He's going to take care of that. He carries it out. I don't have to. I don't have to be eat up with vengeance. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just glad I'm not going to hell. I deserved it too. And the grace of Jesus found me. I'm going to tell you why he's different. The last two are my favorite. He collects his people. This is the first hint in the book of Jeremiah that God's doing something bigger than Israel. Look what the word says beginning in verse 18. O Lord, 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come. Up to this point, it's all been about Israel. But now God says, no, 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 I'm going to bring people from all nations to me. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Jeremiah breaks into worship and says, my God's different because he collects for himself a people from all nations. Do you know what heaven looks like? Look at the book of Revelation with me. In the book of Revelation, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The nations, the nations, every tribe, every tongue, the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Anybody who's amassed anything 
We'll bring it to Christ in glory and honor of him. He collects for himself a people. This is why the day Church the Meal loses our missionary call, we lose our reason for existing, and God ought to take his hand off us. It's why it matters that we care about people in Uganda, that we care about people in Nicaragua, that we care about people in China, that we care about people in the surrounding communities who did not have a Bible-believing church they could go to today and hear God's Word preached. It matters that we be a part of the Lord's business of seeing the nations come to Him. He collects for Himself a people, and finally, and I'm done, He cares about His preeminence. God cares about his preeminence. If you care about your preeminence, you're being arrogant and selfish. Do you know why? Because you're not preeminent. But if you are truly the preeminent creator of the world, you have the right to care about your preeminence, which of course is why verse 21 says, Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. All right, you can close your Bibles, and if you need to, open up your brain. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew. Do you know what the word Lord comes from? It's in the book of Exodus. Moses says, God, when I go get these people, and Pharaoh asks me, who do I represent? What do I say? He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, he goes on to say, Say to this people of Israel, the Lord God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Go back one slide. I want to show them that first verse one more time. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the name of God. In the Hebrew, it's four letters. I'll show you what those four letters are. You read them from right to left. It's the Yod, the He, the Vav, and the He. These four letters were the name of God. They really represent a self-sufficient, self-existent, all-knowing, one who causes to be and is to come. I am who I am. The Hebrews respected the name of God so much that when they were reading along and they came to this, they would not even pronounce it. There are no consonants in the Hebrew vocabulary. And so our best way of pronouncing it is Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, when the Latins came along and they decided to try to translate it, there is no yah, yod, or yod in the Hebrew, so they substituted it for what would make the sound J in the English language, and that's why you get Jehovah, Yahweh, Jehovah, but a Hebrew would never say that. Out of his respect for the preeminence of God, he would come to it and he'd say, mm, the Lord. The Lord. He's so good and he's so Lord, I'm not going to say his name out of respect. My words can be filthy. My tongue can lash out. I'll not let his name come. I'll just say he's the Lord. And this is why it's so powerful when God says, you let him know my name is is the Lord. And after the resurrection, when Peter's preaching, you know what Peter says? I want you to know, in the book of Acts, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has both made Christ both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
So the next time you're facing something you don't understand and you don't know what to do, just stop and say, you know what, I don't understand and I don't know what to do, but his name is the Lord. He's in charge. He bought me. He sealed my future, took care of my past, woke me up this morning. I may be so delirious with discouragement, I don't even know my name, but his name is the Lord. His name is the Lord. Remember that question I was going to ask you? I'm going to ask you. Is the life you're living, does your life say? His name is the Lord. Do you know his name in your life? Let's pray.